Welcome to a new podcast from The Race, focusing on the world's only all-electric single-seater series, Formula E. I'm Jack Nichols, and alongside me is The Race's Formula E reporter, Sam Smith. Sam, welcome to our new show. Thank you, Jack. Good to be here. Yeah. Tell us about your Formula E history. Well, it goes back to Punta del Este in season one, which was the third ever race of Formula E, and I think I've missed about six since then. Worked for a variety of media, currently, obviously, with The Race. Currently. Yes, thank you. Yeah, we'll see how it goes in the next half an hour. But no, it's um, a fascinating championship and obviously one which has grown and grown to to where we're at the minute, which is chock full of manufacturers. So it's a good place to be, lots of intrigue and there's always a story. So uh, hopefully we're going to tell you all about some of those uh, paddock stories now. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be bringing you all the information as the season progresses. We're five races down currently. Two races in Diria in Saudi Arabia, a race in Santiago, Mexico and Marrakesh. And Antonio Felix da Costa is uh, leading the championship, 11 points clear of Mitch Evans. So those are the highlights. We're going to focus in on Marrakesh, really, the last race in which uh, Diaz de Chita looked very, very strong indeed. Antonio Felix da Costa winning with the third biggest winning margin in the history of Formula E. Is that, were we expecting them to be so strong this year? Yes, in a word. I think from what they had last year, the package has been tweaked and they have a, they have a, a really efficient package, but also one which has kind of flummoxed their competitors because they're able seemingly to save a bit more energy early on in the race. And then they're able to adapt their strategy, which is exactly what we saw from Marrakesh, because da Costa was able to basically allow Max Gunter through, uh, sit in the slipstream, and then save a bit of energy, and then cruise away and build a gap. I mean, it was helped by Jean-Éric Verne obviously getting into third position and, and hassling Gunter. But what we're seeing from DS, I think, is partly to do with their uh, break-by-wire system, which is built in-house. They've got an entire in-house system, which they've learned from their World Rally Championship days, of course, part of the PSA group. And what we're seeing now is really a maturing of that system, and it's, it's, uh, it's paying a lot of dividends at the moment. How much of a works team are DS to Cheetah? Because we talk about Mercedes, BMW, Porsche, all sort of with their... You know, they're only their first name. Yes, of course, you've got an HWA who are running Mercedes and Andretti are running BMW, but you you think of them solely as a manufacturer, whereas I think that doesn't really feel like it's the case with DS. You don't think of it as Citroen, and DS will tell you they're not Citroen. So it's, it's quite a, a strange hybrid to have a half-and-half half works team that are actually doing the job. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a curious setup, actually, because... They run under a Chinese flag and are owned by uh, Seika, uh, who are a big Chinese sports marketing company. But DS themselves are based in Sartori uh, in Paris. It is in the old Citroën uh, factory where they did the World Rally car and they've done the Dakar cars before. So they've got all the capability and facilities within there. So from that respect, it's a full-on works manufacturer package. A lot of the, lot of the systems um, are, are derived from there. But the team actually is a mix of uh, British and French, mostly French through DS, but also um, a band of engineers which is managed by Leo Thomas, who is the sort of driving force of the technical operation. And now they've got a a British team manager called Nigel Beresford, who's a well-known 
racing insider who's worked for Penske and sort of set up Dragon, really. He was the guy who uh, was instrumental in making Dragon real. So it's, it's got these co- kind of constituent parts that work really well together. Um, uh, so I think from that respect, although not a traditional OEM-style setup, it's not far off. How, how different is it to, like, the BMW setup, for example? Because they, too, are sort of Andretti, and it's similar. You know, it's the same team that have been there since season one with Andretti. Yeah, probably the most similar to mm. them, I think. Obviously, different ways of working, but I think in terms of um, sort of parity on technical capabilities, it's it's probably pretty similar. But Formula E is that curious thing, isn't it? It's one of those things where even if you are a big manufacturer, there are certain limitations. There are personnel limitations. There are there are certain things you can and can't do. There's a cost cap. Well, not a cost cap, but a cost efficiency element to it. So if you're quite lean, actually, you can probably you can probably punch above your weight pretty quickly. Do you think BMW can challenge to Cheetah this year? Because we saw that we half saw it in uh, in Marrakesh with Max Gunter splitting the two on the on the podium. Yeah, I think they're a little bit off at the minute. I think we saw that in Marrakesh. The hierarchy of Formula E, I think, was sort of established as much as it can be without any suspension, race suspensions. So I think BMW... Have got a chance. I think Jaguar might be slightly nearer. Um, obviously, that was masked a bit by Mitch Evans's uh, problems in qualifying. They had this kind of pretty shambolic uh, timing incident where he just missed the checkered flag, which, from a risk point of view, seemed pretty nonsensical to me and to lots of people. But it was really a communication error. But I think they're the three. There's a kind of breakaway element at the front of DS, BMW, and and Jaguar were on pace, and they're probably pretty close. But as I said at the top of the show, DS seem to have this whatever it is, and, and a lot of the teams are pretty interested to know what it is. I think a huge part of it is their drivers at DS to Cheetah. I, think, I don't think you can underestimate that. I asked Mark Preston in uh, Marrakesh whether this was the best driver pairing they'd ever had, and he was like, oh, yeah, easily, which I thought was quite a bold thing to say off the back of Andre Lotterer having had a good year. You know, Jean-Rick Burns has some rubbish teammates, but Lotterer was there or thereabouts, a good sports car pedigree. He was all right, but Mark Preston was so emphatic that, yeah, this is the best driver pairing we've ever had. And I wouldn't be surprised if De Costa ends up pushing Verne all the way and, and, and beating him. And so he should. He's been in it since the start, and he's a, he's a good driver. I think there were a lot of... Certainly, I, I sort of questioned if De Costa was a, a genuine title contender and if he was somebody who could lead a team. Now, As in sort of having the, the metal for it almost? Yeah, because, you know, he was, he was always there or thereabouts and Andretti had some extenuating circumstances with their, um, their season two powertrain, which was ditched, and then they used yeah. the, the Renault package again. So there was a bit of momentum loss there. Then they went Magneti Morelli, and they had different setups and packages. And De Costa, don't forget, kind of didn't come off too well when he raced against Robin in the same team. Robin generally had the better hand. Yeah, I think that's fairly clear. So I think, actually, this is a major season for De Costa. I think he has to do what he's doing at the minute and take it to Jev. Because he didn't do it last year, arguably. When he had the BMW, a very strong car, took the pole and the win at the first race, but then... Nothing else really made him super stand out, I didn't think. I agree. I agree. And I think 
Alexander Sims as a complete rookie came in and gave him a, mm. a hard time and then lost momentum, admittedly, with, with incidents in the, the middle portion of the season. But then in, in, uh, in New York, he was, he was beating De Costa. And, you know, I think at that stage, Antonio's head had been turned by that infamous meeting with Jev in, uh, in Le Mans, where he was, uh, he was asked if he wanted to replace Lotra. When it became known, Lotra was off to Porsche. So, yeah, I think it's a big season for him. And I think at the moment... So Jev, Jev invited De Costa along? Correct. Really? Yeah. yeah, he did. And there was an interesting... I, I sat down with Antonio in Beijing at the WEC race in November and had a really good chat with him. And there was actually a really intriguing part of the deal where De Costa had pretty much told BMW that he was off to, um, to Cheetah. But then apparently Lotterer was kind of, you know, kind of swinging like one of those sort of swing balls from one side to the other and he was not sure what he was doing and and da costa could have been pretty exposed and don't forget that da costa was very exposed in the end of season one because he'd agreed to join mahindra uh, which i'm not sure many people know and i think there was a period of you know a day or two where he didn't have a seat because then mahindra had to take bruno senna Mm. Um, for, for lots of reasons, contractual reasons. And Antonio was a bit um, a bit isolated for a day or two. So I think that was playing on his mind when this whole situation with, with DS came up. But he eventually joined and he's, he's doing the job. Is that De Costa being exposed, which is not a great phrase, but like, is, is that related to the delay for BMW signing Alexander Sims? Because there was a big old, you know, Gunter was signed and then there was a long old delay with BMW not signing a second driver so were they perhaps waiting if da costa came back unknown it's an odd one because don't forget they signed well they announced max gunter before they announced alexander sims Mm. i think actually the sims delay was more about just sort of minutiae of uh, contractual stuff i don't think it was anything bigger picture but i might be wrong it seemed very peculiar that somebody who had a a great finish to the season wasn't snapped up as, as quickly as he was. But, uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think going back to Gunter, I think he's one of the stories of the season because where he was at the end of last year where he had this, let's face it, you know, complete mismanagement by by Dragon and Jay Penske. They allowed him to slip through their fingers despite nurturing him, giving him a chance. And then there was this, frankly, ridiculous situation with Felipe Nasser in the middle of the season and Max was effectively benched. So, you know, if you want to, if you want a masterclass in in not managing a driver properly, then uh, that that's it for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and he's been incredibly impressive this year. A bit sort of, he's either been first or second or zero points at all. So I think there's the consistency to work on. But I think what impressed me was the the coolness and the the calmness on the radio in those closing laps. He'd take the lead of even earlier on. He he took the lead at one point. And said to the team on the radio, guys, I'm in the lead. Like, are we happy with this? Because he was aware of the slipstreaming situation and, and all of that. So he's very, he's the second youngest driver on the grid. He's the youngest ever race winner in Formula E, 22 and 200 days, I think. But he's super calm. One of, I think one of the calmest drivers I've heard on the radio, full stop. Yeah, I agree. Very, very impressive guy. And like I said, coming back from that experience bruising experience at dragon is is very impressive too and i i was he went missing in mexico and i thought oh what's happening here and what happened in mexico is he just rooted his tires early on in the race through the peraltada couple of laps he he just overheated his tires and was never able to recapture any pace or form so 
I think that's, um, you know, you're allowed one or two of those a season. We've seen it in, in various races. Stoffel van Dorn had one in Marrakesh, just completely anonymous. Um, but Gunter fought back and he was, he was looking back to his Santiago form for sure in Marrakesh. So can Mitch Evans challenge these drivers over the course of the season? Jaguar look very impressive. And Evans will claim that if he had got across the line in time in qualifying, he would have set the fastest time in, in group qualifying for the third race in a row. Yeah, he's right. I think Jaguar have got genuine pace. I think Evans has hit a rich vein of form. He would have been in the mix for pole. Again, his second his second pole of the season. And as we saw in the race, he just sighed through the field. He was on yeah, he was just showing terrific pace, good judgment in getting past um the majority of the field. I think it's the most places that have genuinely been uh, gained during a race. Uh, and he got fastest lap points as well. So, yeah, Mitch Evans is is on a sort of uh, crest of a wave at the minute. Uh, the big question there, though, is from what Jaguar was saying last year is uh, for the team's championship, although a rookie, James Collado, um, has accrued a few points, but not the big points to put Jaguar into the into the mix when it comes to the top of the team standing. So that's a that's a bit of a curious one. Curious? What do, what's, what's, what are you using as a synonym uh, there for? Um, well, with all respect to James Collada, who's a terrific driver uh, and a guy who um, you know, will eventually do a good job, in the context of Jaguar saying that they need two drivers to fight for a team's championship, then the no-brainer was to take Alex Lynn, wasn't it? I think uh, after Alex arguably could have won in New York last year, he could have got a podium in Berlin, his qualifying was pretty decent. Uh, he came in quite cold, uh, was expected to take the drive, and then James Collado curiously comes into the team. So uh, when, I, when I say that, what I mean is that somebody who's been out of single-seaters for six years and has done a couple of tests for Jaguar gets given, gets given the contract. It was, uh, yeah, it, was, it was hard to see the rationale in that, and, and actually even now it is, even though James is doing a decent job as a rookie. You know, don't get me wrong, he's, he's, he's making he, a good fist of it, that's for sure. Because that's what I was thinking this, and uh, you know, obviously his experience is, is very impressive, and uh, I think he was third to Sam Bird in GP2 the year that Bird finished second, so you know, that's the sort of level of driver we were talking about in the junior careers. But Nick de Vries, for example, has come in as a as a total rookie, Formula Two champion the, uh, last year, and you can't say that he hasn't been a lot lot stronger than James Collado. You know, there comes a point, doesn't there, where you know saying someone's a rookie doesn't work when other rookies are are, are doing well. Yeah, I mean, it's... Oliver Rowland last year came in and was pretty much there with yeah, Buemi straight straight from the start. But it wasn't sustained, was it? You know, Oliver has scored some some good consistent points this year, but he's not shown that form that he showed last year. And same with Verline, Pascal Verline. You know, he's not been able to maintain some of the uh, performances that he put in a, uh, on occasion last season. A lot of it's dependent on, on the package, of course, because once it's homologated, you can't change it. Um, and, you know, Mahindra have had their own issues with that, that penalty and the changing gearbox as well. And Nissan, of course, similar technical issues with having to change their entire... It, it, well, having to change, adapt its powertrain quite significantly from from last year. So yeah, I mean the rookies thing is it's actually really hard to read because mm. you do get these flashes. But as we've seen, you know, Stoffel Van Dorn over the last two races has been has been pretty poor. So it's it's hard to see. I mean, 
I, th- I think from De Vries, you're, exa- you're right, he's the standout rookie of the season, absolutely head and shoulders above everybody else in the championship who's come in fresh. I felt zo- very sorry for him, actually, in uh, Marrakesh, because he was, what, was he running third or fourth at the time he third. got a drive-through penalty? Yeah. And so in the end, it turned into this Tachita versus BMW battle. But I think, I mean, you know, you don't know, but De Vries had all the opportunity to make that a, a three-team fight up at the front for Mercedes. Correct. He came out of the pits, I think he was three seconds behind Marr which is, you know, a desperate state to be in when you come out of the pit. So he managed to get through the field. He got through the field and he, he did a fantastic job. Um, you know, I think he could have got a podium at, at the end of it, but they've had this, you know, Mercedes is an interesting one because in, in Mercedes' defence, first of all, last year they had this satellite season or this, you know, well, this learning season operationally, but it wasn't a technical learning exercise for them in the sense they were using all the hardware and all the software from Venturi, mm. okay? And we saw that, you know, over the course of the season, it wasn't fantastic for them. Plus, they had loads of breakages with drive shafts that were, you know, seemed to be made out of straw on occasion. So there was, you know, there was a lot of issues for them. This season, they are actually genuine rookies apart from the operational side which they know how to do having said that they've accrued more penalties than anyone else for a lot of operational things as well so I, I feel a bit for De Vries but it'll come back for them and you know Van Dorn has to put this um, put this missing race out of his head pretty quickly because he's got a quick teammate who just keeps him on his toes all the time I think from a technical side though Mercedes have a lot of uh, like an outrageous amount of experience with powertrains and, and the like I mean this this um the the races man on the other podcast, Scott Mitchell, did an interview with um, Andy Cowell. And he said that basically this whole Formula E powertrain stems from 2009 Formula One when Kurz was brought in and Mercedes were one of the first teams to go, yeah, let's develop a Kurz motor, as it yeah. was. And then that subsequently developed into the F1 hybrid power units and, and all of that sort of thing. So it's not like they're starting from scratch in the way that you got the feeling sometimes with like a like with Andretti when they tried to sort of cobble their own together at the start of season two you know they've got a huge amount of the actual mechanical experience of it so I think I think having that experience from actually running the race is is crucially important more so I think than having had a year with their own powertrain under their belt yeah it's the application isn't it yeah it's applying it to their their program but you know when they've got these over spikes and they you know they got the coolant wrong of their um of their battery in Santiago yeah yeah in Santiago so they took penalties for that and and De Vries lost a lost a podium so you could say actually team errors have cost De Vries two podiums so far this season yeah yeah that's true and two podiums out of five races is going to put you right up there in the in the championship isn't it near near your Stoffel van Dorns and uh, of this world that's Mercedes Porsche there's an interesting one came in in uh, Diria podium in their first race Lotera hooray oh, then they took a pole in Mexico City it's so hit and miss I think with with Porsche and the hits have been impressive the hits have shown real promise but the misses have been quite spectacular yeah, they have. Uh, Lotter has been magnificent. I think he's been fantastic. Santiago, a part where he was 
probably too aggressive. And then actually Mexico... Where he was too aggressive. Where he was too aggressive. And then what about Marrakesh <laughs> when he was too aggressive? Was he? Yeah. Where was he too aggressive uh, at Marrakesh? Coming into turn 11, he was side by side with okay. someone. But anyway, on his way back through yeah. the field. But I mean, I think, I think Andre... Is is quite a um, quite an aggressive driver as we know anyway. Um, in a sprint race, it does tend to f- become slightly more accentuated. And uh, by his own admittance, I think in Marrakesh he knew he had to be slightly more conservative and patient. And I think generally he was. And then he he faded away out of that sort of top top four top five position and ended up finishing eighth. I think it was at the end of it. His qualifying's been sensational. Yeah, he got some real good qualifying pace in that car, that's for sure. And um, it's just applying it to an entire race. I think Marrakesh was a bit of a quirk because, obviously, when they did all their development testing prior to the homologation, Marrakesh wasn't on the schedule because it was a replacement race for for Hong Kong, Mm. meaning that not only did they have no data for the race, uh, for the circuit itself, you know, they they couldn't really factor it into their their testing particularly. Okay, they had a few days at uh, Valencia, but that was, there was some disruption to that because of, uh, they both had crashes, didn't they? Johnny and um, Lotterer and Johnny's chassis had to be changed and Johnny's chassis has got to be changed after Marrakesh as well, because on the Sunday, Fred Makaviki was in the car um, and complained there was something wrong with it, and they are changing that chassis now, which might actually answer some of the issues that have, uh, shall we say, potentially contributed to Neil Jarney's pace over the last few races, because having followed Neil during his career in WEC and, and some single-seater racing, Neil Jarney, I can tell you, is n- not that far off the pace of of a teammate. Um, I, I just don't believe that he is uh, that he is as far away on pure pace as he as he has shown. But couldn't you say that about James Collado? Well, yeah, I mean, similarly, he is, he is a rookie. James is a rookie. Um, isn't Johnny? Are you saying Johnny is or isn't a rookie, sorry? A rookie in Formula E sense. Yeah, oh, abs- yeah. absolutely sure. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's true. Um, and, and Neil has had more testing than, than Collado. But, of course, it's, it's so hard to, um, to give comparisons in, in different teams and different, different setups. What, I, what I'd say with Porsche is that I expect Johnny to be getting some big points for them this season. Really? Um, yeah, I, I, really? I, I'm, I'm in a minority. You go, you go up and down the paddock and yeah. people just don't believe it. And quite well, cause, Presumably because there's no evidence to support the theory. He's been out in group four yeah. of qualifying every time, the best yeah. possible group, yeah. and hasn't qualified higher than, uh, is it 13th or 12th? Yeah, he out-qualified Andre at Santiago, looked good at Santiago, then got involved in a melee at the start. Mexico was looking decent. When Andre was out in Group 1 in Santiago. Yes. After his successes and being on the podium in Saudi. Yes. I'm just adding these little like, cases caveats. for just cases caveats. for the defence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, don't forget Andre's got two seasons experience, both of Gen 1 and Gen 2 as well. A lot does come down to experience, um, particularly in the races, particularly in the races. We're seeing it with Collado and Evans. I mean, you just can't plug in and play to the extent they did. Verline, as we said before, Verline at Roland did last year, but don't forget it was the first season of that rules iteration. So there was a more, there was a more level playing field, that's for sure. So what, what, what do you, to your mind, is the purpose of 
hiring Johnny. If it's if if you can't plug in and play a driver, obviously he's very experienced, but he's not one for the future, is he? In in two years, Porsche won't have the same driver lineup. Surely, due, no. just due to age. So, how, how are you building something for the future if you have two old boys in it? You know, I get Lotterer because he's got <laughs> he's got boys. yeah he's got the experience. I think their combined age is seventy. It's seventy something. <laughs> it might be seventy. Nine? How old's Johnny? No, it must be older than that. Lotter is 38. Johnny's 36, I think. Yeah, so... He was born in 83. You so can add that up at home. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but it. it's like a big number. And, uh, yeah, I just don't quite get the appointment. When you think of the young... Even the kids who were doing... I'd you know, put Thomas Prining in the, in the Porsche and just have a go and see what you can build with the future. That's why I really rate what Mercedes do with, with, a, with a Nick de Vries and what BMW are doing with a... Max Gunter. I don't get the long-term but, but, strategy of putting in an old rookie. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Porsche, Porsche, though, don't... Although they do have a young driver development program, they tend to be from, from sports cars or Porsche Cup, right? Mm. So, you know, Matt Campbell, Matteo Cairoli, Thomas Prining. Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell would be really exciting, wouldn't he? And... I think Prining's quite exciting. He did a good job at yeah. the test. And, you know, he's, he comes with a, with a good pedigree in, in lots of other championships. But you wouldn't you wouldn't put him into a race car ahead of Johnny, even if even if Johnny's at the back. Yeah, well, I you know, like I said, there, I think there are genuine reasons why he is at the back, hmm. um, and I think I'm pretty confident. And this will come back to hold. Yeah, me, here I we know, go with from the, you because you'll remember this. I wasn't going to do a prediction <laughs> segment, but I am now. But just for you, I I, th- I, yeah, I will stand by it that that Johnny will get some some points this season, some big points. Johnny will get some points this season. Is your is your bold claim? <laughs> yeah, I think he will. I think okay. he'll get some decent points. Okay, Brendan Hartley. Brendan Hartley, experienced driver, yep. ex Formula One driver. He's, he is. He, he's is he is he also struggling? Yes, he is. But I think there are lots of different reasons for why Brendan Hartley is struggling. And that is just the inherent lack of pace in the, the Penske uh, that he's driving at the minute. Uh, which is curious, because from what I heard from the team, the pace was there in private testing. And they were reasonably happy mm. with how that was going. Okay, you know, these long, lonely days at Califat or whatever, it's hard to get any kind of gauges to where, you're, where you are compared to your competitors. But... There has been no sign nor signal that Geox Dragon are, are going to do anything in the races this year, and I, I think they, they they really are struggling. Having said that, you know they get a rookie like Sergio Sete Camera who comes in and does a, a, a very quick time. He was second in the rookie test in his first time he's ever driven the car. So I don't know what that says. Okay, you know the track was rubbered in more and the track conditions were better, and the one lap pace isn't. That bad, but of course we know in Formula E, one lap pace is pretty useless. You know, yeah. when you get into a race, those things are, are dropping lots and lots of, lots of pace. And we've seen that to an extent with Felipe Massa because the Venturis have qualified fairly well. Eduardo Mortara qualified okay. I think Massa was fifth on the grid in uh, in Santiago, but he hasn't picked up anywhere near as many points as, as no. Mortara this season. Bit of a worry for for Massa. He's uh, struggled and. All angles, really. I think in the races, he looks like he gets bullied, bullied out of things quite quite easily, and um, he's not qualifying well. He had a, he had a desperate Marrakesh, actually had a desperate Mexico, and Marrakesh crashed out of the first one and then finished way way back in uh, ninth in Santiago is his only yeah, finish. So a couple of points he's got 
I, 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 you know, the fact is that Mortara is is absolutely smashing him to bits in in qualifying, and and in the races as well. So, big concern there. But uh, the, are, are the any of these there. drivers under pressure? Is is Massa under pressure? Would you say in terms of keeping a race seat or losing a race seat? Or? I don't think so. No, no, because because he's got he's got a built in he's got a fixed contract there, and he's a big name. And I think his um, his deal's quite complex in terms of who pays him. I think he's, do you chip in? I do, yeah, occasionally. Well, when he when he performs, so I'm cash rich at the minute. <laughs> no, I, you know, it's 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 sad to see because I think everyone wants to see somebody who's got the profile, yeah, like Felipe Massa do well, and he's he's obviously achieved so much in his career. But Monaco, apart from last year, okay, you know, actually, when you look at the qualifying, he was he was ahead of Montari, out qualified mm. Montara last year. We're not seeing it this year. And as you know, once you get onto a, once you get a trough in Formula E, it's hard to it's hard to get out of it. Uh, tell me about another six years of it. But uh, what um, is, is the same question about Marching Hua for Neo? Is he under pressure, or or is he not under pressure? Or because there, I presume there comes a point where if the car is the slowest, which it is, Oliver Turvey managed to drag it up to fifth in Santiago, which was one of How? the yeah, How which is one that? of the most exceptional. It might be one of like the best laps I've ever seen, which feels a bit ridiculous to yeah. say because I, you know you're not far off there. But it was unbelievable. But in general, it's rubbish. So does it matter if if you're if you know we're not we're, when we're talking about Jaguar, they need two strong drivers to take an assault on the championship. As if you're last, do you need two strong drivers? Yes, you do. Problem with Neo three 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 is just where they came from after last year. Last year was a complete. An utter shambles on yeah. every level. Uh, they had a restructuring over the over the summer. Were bought by Li Sheng, which is I've been told is effectively like the Chinese Pro Drive in terms of their okay. standing in the industry. They're quite a bit. They are a big company, um, but they were so far behind. Actually, somebody within the team told me that they, it was a miracle that they made Valencia. I mean, they really shouldn't have been at Valencia. I remember, yeah, I remember the talk that they wouldn't, actually. Yeah, and, and Riyadh was difficult. They were finding it difficult to map the, the software properly and, and get everything correct. And then they, they did that in Santiago and dragged this lap time out, which was just astonishing by, by Oliver Turvey. Um, but race pace, you know, he just, he just dropped back like a stone, really. And they are using, uh, although it is uh, on paper a manufacturer powertrain, actually... The motors and the inverters are old Penske's. They're last year's Penske motor and inverter, which, as we saw, was pretty erratic on pace anyway. So for Turvey to drag that out, incredible. But I think that will be one of very few spikes in, in anything positive for the team. And as for Marr, um, you know, he's, he's struggling because of all that. Of course he is. But, um, it's, you know, we're expecting him to be at the back of the field. They did try Daniel Cow at the weekend. Uh, I was told that if Cow showed uh, a degree of pace, and he didn't have any simulator testing, by the way, so uh, there could be a change. There could be a change wherever we're racing next, and uh, we'll just have to see on that. You know, I, I think Mar is, is an easy target, that's for sure, but there's a lot of extenuating circumstances anyway for his, for his pace. Okay, so let's move on now to the calendar because sam i don't know when i'm going to see you again or where i thought you're gonna break into song there <laughs> when no. will i see you <laughs> <laughs> there we go sam smith's singing debut here on the race well, don't I, say we don't I bring you get any a falsetto with a name like mine shouldn't i sam smith that's probably worth pointing out that if you've been listening to the whole podcast 
thinking you're listening to singer Sam Smith, you're not. You're listening to motorsport journalist Sam Smith. Although there could there could have been some confusion just then. So now we've just call me sniffer. Yeah, it's call you sniffer. Right, but anyway, when will I see you again? Due to the global issue of coronavirus. It's just changing day by day, isn't it? So um, what we do know is that a variety of possible uh, plans exist, one of which is to go back to Marrakesh, um, which um, would be quite an easy one for the teams and the organisers and promoters to achieve. The hardware has gone back, as in the cars have gone back to Valencia, which um, is the home of the pre-season test. That too could become a location for a future round. I've heard tracks such as Rickup or Ricard or Assen, which apparently... Assen? Yes, in, uh, in, in Holland has been mooted as well. But look, we're, we're getting well into speculation here. Like you said, Jack, it's going to be a case of uh, almost daily updates on, on what's achievable and possible from a, a travel and obviously an insurance perspective because a lot of these manufacturers have very complex and detailed insurance policies for their for their staff and their and their factories so they will effectively go by those i think and cape town Ypres, talking of calendar for next year uh, yeah. fingers crossed you, you, you there's an article on the race about it there what does is. it say or should people just read it <laughs> there yeah cape town uh, could host a race in february 2021 they've done an official feasibility study which uh, not uh, some some cities do and never actually get to host a race. Well, did Auckland do one. I feel like Auckland went quite I think hard I'm on sure a feasibility Auckland, study. Auckland did one, and then they lost, or certainly the finance that was going to be part of that to put it on went to I think the America's Cup um, initiative. I think it was America's Cup. Might mm. be wrong. Not big on the sailing news, by the way, but it was something to do with that. Can't think, sing. Not big on sailing news. What's the point? I'm not multi-talented like you, Jack. (laughs) Or I don't support multiple football clubs like you do. That's that's true, that's true. (laughs) But Cape Town, I think, has got a real chance because the the people behind it are very experienced in in motorsport events, both at Kyle Army and on other fixtures, such as the Durban A1GP race, which ran, which I went to two of those, actually. Is that the one Jos Verstappen won? Oh, I can't remember. Overtake on the last lap? It might have been. Was that the first Durban race? I think it was. I d- I ju- I've just seen a clip on yeah. YouTube of well, Ben was, Edwards and Watty going nuts. I was there, but I was at an all-inclusive hotel, so I've got very sketchy memories of that particular weekend. <laughs> the, um, yeah, but, you know, South African motorsport, I think, is on the, on the rise. SRO have got the nine hours race. Uh, there's a World Rallycross uh, event there, and there's obviously a WEC race at Kyle Army now. So uh, the people involved, there's a guy called Johan Rupert who's involved, who is the second wealthiest man in Africa at $7.3 billion uh, estimated wealth. So um, I don't think they're going to be want for, um, for commercial, uh, for commercial uh, endeavour to get that underway and get it, get it run. But, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, but I think, it, it could, I think it's a good chance of Cape Town being on the calendar for, for Season 7. So we know more about the Season 7 calendar than the Season 6 calendar? It seems like way, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, the season seven calendar will be a provisional one. Will be seen at the World Motorsport Council in June. Um, but as we know with Formula E, it is one of the trickiest things to to, to master and, and get actually 
confirmed. Um, but yeah, from what I'm hearing, it's, it's going to be broadly similar to what we're seeing in season six. But there could be a couple of new races, one of which potentially could be Cape Town. Other cities I'm hearing about, Houston in in uh, in Texas is is quite interested in in doing something as well. So, and then there are always two or three others that potentially could do it. The, one of the holy grail ones is going to be in Japan, of course, with Tokyo or Yokohama. I hear that Yokohama potentially has got a better chance than than Tokyo for the first ever Japanese e So, just have to wait and see. But you'll read it first, Jack, on therace.com. Well, hopefully you'll text me before you put your story up, and then I'll hear it first from you. Oh, obviously. Yeah. Can we do part, that? Part of the deal. Uh, anything else you want to you cover, Sam, before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think it's all on the site. Um, you get all the latest news on, on the website. Make sure you follow The Race on social media at We Are The Race. And if you like this podcast, well, you got to the end of it. So you must have done. So subscribe and then uh, they'll all just automatically pop up and it will be great. We'll see you next time uh, on the next episode of The Race's Formula E podcast. <laughs> <laughs>